Uh, it is great to be with you. What a, what a beautiful morning. What a beautiful weekend. And you know, only God can do this. Only God can make a day that just fills your heart and your mind when you just take in the, the beauty of creation and what he did and, and that he allows us to be a part of it uh, only by his mercy and grace for his glory. So I've just enjoyed this weekend. As Jonathan said, we are beginning the book of Colossians today. And as you're going to see, it is definitely a letter for today as we get into this. We're going to just do a flyover summary of the book, and then we're going to jump in. But historically, we know that Paul was the author of the book, and he wrote it during his first imprisonment in Rome. And you have some references there, and that was between 60 and 62 A.D. Uh, you see the first verse in Colossians, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother. And again, as you're, as you're reading through this, you'll see very clearly that Paul was the author. The last verse of the book tells us that as well. There is discussion regarding whether or not Paul ever visited this church and the internal evidence of the book at the time of this writing, at least, is the answer is no. And we'll get into that as we... Uh, begin to, to dive in, into the book itself. He wrote it to the saints in the church at Colossae, which is modern-day Turkey today for you geography buffs. So if you're trying to figure out where Colossians or Colossae was during that time, that's, that would be your answer. It was in the city of Phrygia, a district in Asia Minor, and it was approximately 120 miles east of Ephesus and 12 miles southeast of Laodicea, and that is anything but insignificant as we'll expound on this morning. The church was predominantly comprised of Gentiles, we'll make more of that in chapter 2, who most likely came to faith in Christ during the space of two years where all they who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, Acts 19.10. So, Given the fact that they were in Asia, they would have been included in all those who heard the word, which would explain or justify how they came to faith in Christ. And again, I gave you a map there just so you can just kind of have some bearings regarding just where it was. Historically speaking, Colossae was once a great city and a financial powerhouse, but at the time of this epistle, it was in decline and would be destroyed by an earthquake in AD 66. You know, it's very interesting to me when you look at the, the state or the condition of the city of Colossae uh, at this time, it, it just reminds me how impoverished areas are always ripe for false teaching. They just are. They're desperate and they will cling to anything. And of course, when you know the backdrop here that we're going to get into, it's absolutely fitting. I mean, to this day, it never ceases to amaze me where you'll have areas that are very impoverished and, you know, some teacher or some group will come in and just take over that place because the people are just looking to cling to any hope whatsoever. We talk about the attention. The church at Colossae had been attacked with the heretical doctrine of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is derived from the Greek word gnosis, knowing, that is, knowledge. And that word, as we see in 1 Timothy 6.20, is translated as science. And again, Paul tells you about science falsely called. And so that gives you tremendous insight into what 
Gnosticism was and what it is, present tense, right? It's, it's all about this false science. It, as we'll see, was rooted and is rooted in Judaism. We'll get into that in chapter 2. But Gnostics claim to have received secret revelation from Christ, and that's always a clue that you're dealing with a cult. It's when somehow we have gained some information, some knowledge that is off limits to everyone else except us. And so in order for you to get that, you have to come to us because we're smarter than everybody else in the world. And God chose us, just us alone, to be in possession of this secret knowledge. And if you want it, we'll give it to you, but we want your life in exchange. <laughs> you become subjects in our kingdom. That has not changed. But they claim that their teachings were of higher insight than the gospel. And again, this wasn't new to the church at Colossae. Galatians, the churches at Galatia have the same issue, which is why Paul says, even if an angel come and preach another gospel, let him be accursed. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay? But the Gnostics were very Nicolaitan in spirit. And we see that in Revelation 2, in that they were superior to everyone else. Affinity in terms of just how the book is related to other books, E.W. Bullinger, an English theologian from the late 1800s, noted that 78 out of the 95 verses in Colossians have a marked resemblance to the book of Ephesians. And again, you can go down the line and you can see verse after verse, and I'll just show you a small sampling of that even this morning of just how close they are because like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, they were all written at the same time when Paul was imprisoned at Rome. And so you will even see here when Paul closes the letter, he mentions Tychicus and Onesimus. And again, that is that ties you now directly to the book of Philemon because, again, they were all so closely related. Now, in terms of why Colossians, why Colossians today? We mentioned a moment ago that Colossae was located just 12 miles southeast of Laodicea. What's interesting is when you look at the book in and of itself, the city, Colossae, is only mentioned once by name in this epistle. Whereas the city of Laodicea is mentioned five times. Now the book was not written to the church at Laodicea. But Laodicea is mentioned four times, Laodiceans one time. So five times we see Laodicea referenced in this book, and that gives us prophetic insight into what this book is really about because in type, the book of Colossians pictures a church in the last days before the rapture. That's what you get. And it's very interesting, when you look at the book that follows this book, is what? 1 Thessalonians, <laughs> which in every chapter of that book, the Apostle Paul makes reference to the rapture. So it's very, very fitting. It is a letter for today. And so I'm looking forward to what God has for us. So we begin in verse 1 of the book, Colossians chapter 1. And again, there's, that was a very, very high level summary, but it gives you some footing with respect to where we are and where we're going to be going. 
But verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we mentioned, there is no evidence that at the time of this writing, at least, that Paul had visited this church, and you see that reference in, in verse 2. But without a doubt, it would have been impossible for them to not have known who he was as well as Timothy, because when he makes this greeting or this introduction, he doesn't go into any link to qualify who they were. So it's obvious that they knew who he was. Paul stated his office, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and his authority by the will of God. So that was who he was, and that was the authority from which he was going to be operating under. Now, this might sound routine, but when you consider that they had never met him, and when you consider the things that he was going to be addressing in this epistle, it was important for him to qualify both of those. This is who I am, and this is what gives me the right to say what I'm about to say to you. It's by the authority of God. We'll see later in this chapter that Paul declared that he was made a minister. He didn't choose to become a minister. He was made a minister. In other words, it was by the will of God that Paul became who he became. It's what God desired. So it is God who gifts and chooses men for the pastoral office, and that office comes with God-ordained authority. Now, Paul mentioned Timotheus in his opening, as we see. In chapter 1, Paul clearly speaks in the first person, and at the end of the book, as we stated, he did write this book. Timothy was with Paul at the time of this writing, and you'll see the same thing in the opening verse to the church at Philippi, where he mentions Timothy, because again, Timothy was with him when both were written. Now, in verse 2, we find a greeting that is obviously very familiar in Paul's writings. He mentions grace and peace. We know that grace would have been appropriate for a Greek uh, greeting or opening, and then peace uh, for a Jewish opening or greeting, but he clearly seems to address two groups of people in the church at Colossae. He says to the saints and then faithful brethren. Now, saints would have obviously referred to all the believers who were in the church of Colossae at that time. And that's what saints are because saints, according to the word of God, are nothing more than saved people. Okay, there are no steps to sainthood. The only step to sainthood is salvation in Jesus Christ. That is it. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, not men, the Bible teaches that you are a saint. Okay, that's what the Bible teaches. Okay, but the next designation produces a question. Who are the faithful brethren in verse 2? Was it referring to them collectively from a positional perspective or something else? When you consider that this church was being attacked with satanic heresy, it would seem that Paul had in mind those who were remaining or had remained faithful to the truth despite that. 
While it's not pervasive here at MBT, there are people or there, there have been people who once sat exactly where you're sitting, who to this very day have succumbed to another doctrine. They are claiming to believe something that is absolutely 180 degrees opposite of everything that you've been taught. So it happens. It happens. Here's something else to consider. The only other epistle where you find Paul mentioning this word faithful in his greeting is once again the twin epistle of Ephesians. And it sounds almost exact to what you and I just read in these opening two verses. Turn back now to the book of Ephesians and we'll see it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And again, it's going to sound almost like you're reading the opening of what we just read in Colossians 1, 1 and 2. Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, again, sounds almost identical. Now, here's another key observation. This is the only time, as you see here in Colossians in this opening greeting, this is the only time that you find the phrase faithful brethren in scripture this is the only time you see it faithful brethren it's the only mention of it so here's the point here's where we're going the reality is all saints are brethren but not all brethren are faithful that's the issue all saints are brethren but not all brethren are faithful that's the point, and that's a very important point. Psalm 12, verse 1 says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fell from among the children of men. The faithful man is much like the virtuous woman. They're rare. They're hard to find. They're not in abundance. Would be great if they were. But throughout Scripture, it is clear that they're not everywhere, including the church. One of the things that I find myself doing over the years is whenever I encounter someone that I was exposed to when I got saved at the Kansas City Baptist Temple, uh, there were men and women that I was surrounded by. And when I see them or have seen them 10, 15, 20 years later, I thank them for being faithful. I thank them for being an example to me. Arnold and Linda Thomas are two of those people. When I got saved, I was a babe in Christ. They were at the Kansas City Baptist Temple. And Arnold to me was someone that I looked up to. I still look up to him. Arnold to me was a big brother because he was an ensample of a faithful man. Linda is one of the godliest women I have ever been in the presence of. She loves the Lord. She loves the word of God. She has only been faithful. 
She's a faithful woman to the book. She's a faithful woman to her husband. Doug and Linda Fife <laughs> didn't really know me, and they allowed me to, to coach their son when he was just a junior high kid. Doug is a faithful man. I've known them for over 25 years. I've known Arnold and Linda for over 25 years. Arnold and Linda, they were, I knew them when they were single. Okay? When they were single, right? And had hair. That's right. But you know what? Here, here's what I also remember. I also remember when they met, got engaged, it was a time of joyful celebration for the church as a whole. You know why? Because the church was so excited that two faithful believers were coming together as one. It was a rejoicing. Doug and Linda Fife, just steady. Just steady. Faithful. Hey, let me just, again, not that we have many but if you're single this morning and you're trusting God for a spouse, I'll tell you what, uh, this is one of the things I'd be checking out. Are they faithful? Because listen, a spouse who is unfaithful to a, a believer who is unfaithful to God will only be unfaithful to you. You need to know that. Very, very important. So it... It is beyond humbling for me, when I, believe me when I tell you that, it is beyond humbling for me to stand before you this morning in this capacity and have people like Arnold and Linda, Doug and Linda, Larry and Anita, believers who have gone before me all these years. And that brings us to verse 3, which begins a sentence that concludes in verse 8. This is a long sentence. Verse 3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, more on that, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. So, when we talk about, or we make statements like, you know, Paul mentions his office and then he mentions the authority by which he was authorized to say the things that he was going to say or even do the things that he would do as an apostle. To us, that can sound very impersonal. Okay, Paul is in charge. He's the authority. Whatever he says, we do. That's what authority is, right? Well, that's what happens when people abuse authority, <laughs> when that is the spirit. As we see throughout the Pauline epistles, that was not Paul's heart. Look at verse 3, praying always for you. Not just telling you what to do, not just teaching you, not just ordering you around, praying always for you. 
Now, leaders, would you notice the first word in verse 3? We. It wasn't just Paul. We. Praying always for you. Paul wasn't the only one praying for them. If you are a discipler, you are a teacher, a Bible study leader, or you lead in that capacity somehow, Listen, I know how you operate. I know how you've been trained. I'm a part of that. You've been trained to study to show yourself approved, as you should. I know the time. I know the labor. I know the hours that go into preparing to teach. I get that. It is appropriate. It is respectful. It is right. That is our culture. But here's the question. Do you always pray for them? Do you always pray for them? That's the question. That was Paul's heart. Romans 1, 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Ephesians, the 20th epistle, verse 15, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Please hear me, leaders, teachers. If we're not careful, we can love instructing people and not love people. If we're not careful, give me a platform, give me a podium, give me a lecturing opportunity. I don't really care about the person. Just let me instruct them. Let me tell them what to do. That's not Christ-like leadership. That wasn't Christ's heart. It wasn't Paul's heart. And at the leadership level, that heart attitude is extremely dangerous. As Paul continues in verse 4, or continued in verse 4, we begin to get to know this church at Colossae. We see first, and this is so simple, but we see first that this was a church of believers. This was a church of believers. Notice what he said in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Since Paul had not met them, all he could do, all he had to go on was what he had heard, their testimony. And they had a testimony of faith. Now, to say that this is, you know, very elementary, you're probably like, yeah, this is, duh, he's writing to a church. Of course they're all believers. You should know that according to Revival Outside the Walls, this is a group that does research on the status or status of Christianity in America today. And one of the things I do respect about their research, as far as I can tell, it's certified. So it's not someone who is just yanking some data out of the air and saying, yeah, this is what we think. It, it, it's, it really seems to be sound. So I gave you some of those stats in your notes. We'll go over them. But research says that 45% of people who attend church regularly are not saved. Are not saved. 51% of evangelicals believe many religions can lead to eternal life. 
All roads lead to heaven, right? You pick the one that you like the most. 57% of regular churchgoers say they have never had a religious experience that changed their life. 69% of churchgoers believe that everyone will go to heaven. That would include atheists. Listen, there's a lot that I could say about that, but for now, here's what you need to know. That information is the fruit of the discipleship vacuum that exists in our country today. That's why we have this information. Because the church in America today has gotten smarter than the Bible and is no longer making disciples. We're making church members. We're doing a really good job of promoting and advancing our denominational interests and traditions. But we aren't making disciples. And so, so for many of our churches, we have people who are sitting in them right now who are not heaven-bound. Religious, yes, not saved. And on your way to church today and on your way home, you'll drive by many of them. The question is, are they churches of believers? And Paul defines very clearly for us in verse 4, he defines what a believer is. He said, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... Now, this might seem incidental to you, if not insignificant, but he said your faith in Christ Jesus, not Jesus Christ. Yes, they are one in the same person, but what you should know is that Jesus Christ emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, whereas Christ Jesus emphasizes the deity of Jesus. It's very important. And so Paul was just not just say, well, let me just go with whatever I feel here. No, there is a very specific point that he is driving here. And this is where we can actually extract our biblical definition of what a believer is. In emphatic fashion, when Jesus asked Peter, but whom say ye that I am? Peter emphatically answered that question when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's response was as bold of a declaration to the deity of Christ that one could say, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his confession. That you are God in the flesh. And listen very carefully. Jesus did not correct him. He did not correct him. So Christ or Messiah implies deity. So all of that being said, in the biblical sense, a believer is someone who genuinely believes that God became man in the person of Christ Jesus died on the cross for their sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's a believer. 
That is a believer. And the faith rests in the finished work of Christ alone. Nothing else. Listen, Paul did not say, listen very carefully, since we heard of your baptism, uh, since we heard of your confirmation, uh, since we heard of your good works, uh, since we heard of your religion, no, 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 since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Do you get that? They were believers because they heard and believed the gospel. Look at verse 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. The only reason they had this hope laid up for them in heaven was because they believed the gospel. Which is the same reason that you and I have this hope laid up for us is because we believe the gospel. And by hope, we're talking about, we're not talking about wishful thinking. Like, I hope the Chiefs win. And they did. We're not talking about that kind of hope. Biblically speaking, hope points to expectation. When a woman is pregnant, we say she's what? She's expecting. Well, she's not hoping to get pregnant. She's not hoping. No, she's expecting to have a baby. It's a very real thing. Ask Marcy Kindler about that right now. This is important because as you read on in this epistle, this strikes to the heart of why Paul wrote it. Because he's confronting this issue of those who had complicated the gospel. In Genesis 4, we see Cain who tried to devise a way to work his way to God. And man has followed suit ever since. Everybody has a way that they're going to work their way to God, whether it be their religious works, their good works. You fill in the blank. God, accept this. God says, no, it's just my son. This is why Jesus himself said, I am the way. I'm not a way. <laughs> I am the way. The truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So Paul and Timothy gave thanks for their faith in Christ Jesus, but they were also thankful for something else. Uh, since we heard of your faith, verse 4, in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints. So what we know so far is this was a church of believers, but also this was a church of disciples. This was a church of disciples. Now, anyone who uh, have sat through our cost of discipleship class, or if you sit through it, which is our prerequisite for someone to be discipled here, because we want to make sure that, biblically speaking, you understand what that term means and what you're actually getting into when you say, I want to be discipled. But if you sit through that class or if you've sat through it, one of the things that you learn is that it is true that every disciple is a believer. But not every believer is a disciple. 
And that is a critical point. The problem that we have, one of the problems that we have in the church today is everybody wants to automatically make those two synonymous. So you have people who are sitting in churches who would declare themselves to be a disciple where they are either not saved or if they are saved, they are anything but a disciple. And they are kidding themselves. If you do just a casual study on discipleship, that is a word that you would not treat so lightly because the Bible doesn't. But you have people who will flaunt themselves and slap that label on their life. And I would have to imagine that God says, you know, I really like comedy. <laughs> Everybody ought to be laughing forever. I'm going to come see your movie. Are you kidding me? Come on. Because they are believers. There are believers, I'm sorry, who are not faithful brethren. Saved, yes. Faithful, absolutely not. In terms of how we know that this was a church of disciples, it was Jesus who said in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have loved one to another. And what is it that we just read about this group? They had love for who? All the saints. This was a church of disciples. So how does anyone claim to be a disciple and they don't love God's people? I mean, come on, let's just, you know, Again, I'm not your, I'm not the guy who's up on the, Mark probably knows, like the cool sayings, you know, but if I can, if I, oh, Christina's here, you, you, you'll correct me. If I can, if I can keep it real, is that, does that work? Is that, okay, all right. If I, if I can keep it real. There are people who would say, yes, I'm a believer. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm a disciple. But I wouldn't be welcome in their church because of the color of my skin. And neither would you, depending on the church. But they're a disciple. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. John, who authored the Gospel of John, would later state in his epistle, that such a person is not even a believer. 1 John 3.15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And being inspired by the Holy Ghost, John would not have forgotten what Jesus said and what he himself wrote in John 8.44 when he said, Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer. So when a man claims to be a believer, he claims to be a disciple, but yet possesses a hatred in his heart towards someone who is a real brother. Come on. Where is that coming from? You just read it. A murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. 
I'm currently reading a book right now by Dr. Tony Evans, and it's called Kingdom Disciples. It's been a very refreshing and affirming read for me from a discipleship standpoint. And I gave you an excerpt that I wanted to share with you because it's very fitting what we're talking about. He said the primary problem in our country is not that we don't have enough money, not that we can't work through the sociological problems, and not that there aren't enough government programs. The problem with our country is not even that we don't have enough churches filled with Christians. The problem is we don't have enough disciples. Where are the true followers? I agree. He goes on to say the shortage of disciples explains why we have so many Christians and so little impact within our churches. Now, Dr. Tony Evans is a very wise man, and so I, I carefully address something that he said that I just want to point out to you biblically. Um, I'm not so sure anymore that our churches are filled with Christians. And that's not just based on research. That's based on what the Bible says itself. Because in Acts chapter 11, which is where we find the very first mention of the word Christian in the Bible, what you understand is it is clearly associated with discipleship. Clearly. Look at it. Acts 11:26. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, that's Saul. Barnabas found him and brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. Listen, people had come to faith in Christ. Barnabas and Saul come now and spend a year, here we go, discipling them. That's what's happening here. Now look what follows. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Do you see that? Now, I'm going to say something here that will hopefully cause you to reconsider how you might use and throw the name Christian or the term Christian around and to also, I think it's going to sound a little different from here. Hopefully it does. But listen, they weren't called disciples because they were Christians. They were called Christians because they were disciples. Do you see the difference? Anybody can be a Christian today. <laughs> Just slap it on anything you want to slap it on. But biblically speaking, this word Christian is only used three times in your New Testament. You should study each time it's used. It will change how you view and use the term. I do not believe that any and everybody is a Christian. Without discipleship, it is hard at best. Without discipleship, it is hard at best to determine if someone really is a believer. I don't know how you can tell. I'm sorry, because believers who do not get discipled, I'm sorry guys, but they think, speak, and act just like unbelievers. It's hard to tell. 
And I'm not saying I'm the expert on anyone's salvation. I'm just telling you, I have met people, I know people who claim to be saved. And I look at their life and I go, well, praise the Lord, I guess. Here's my last point. Discipleship, listen, is the strongest evidence of salvation. That's how we know. Discipleship is the strongest evidence of salvation. Lord, thank you so much for what you have shown us in this opening of Colossians. We do pray that you would go before us and continue to teach us your word. In Jesus' name, amen.